very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. To listen to this entire interview and all of our material, just go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You can also purchase our USB drives with all our seasons, including the season that just ended, Season 6. So just go to the Veritas store. It's now available. And I want to thank you for the wonderful comments received on our Season 7 premiere with Cliff High. Remember, you can watch the video and download the audio. And I want to apologize for the delay in releasing that uh, interview, but I had no idea that video would take so much time. Some are asking if we're going to start doing more videos, and the answer is probably yes. Again, I had no idea it would take so long to produce. I won't make any guarantees, but I will hope we can produce a few more videos throughout the year. It was not long after the first Japanese bombs fell on the American naval ships at Pearl Harbor that conspiracy theories began to circulate, charging that President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his chief military advisors knew of the impending attack well in advance. Robert Stinnett, who served in the U.S. Navy with distinction during World War II, examines recently declassified American documents and concludes that, far more than merely knowing of the Japanese plan to bomb Pearl Harbor, Roosevelt deliberately steered Japan into war with America. In September 1940, Roosevelt signed into law a measure providing for a two-ocean navy that would number 100 aircraft carriers, and more importantly, on American governmental documents that offer apparently incontrovertible proof that Roosevelt knowingly sacrificed American lives in order to enter the war on the side of England. Historians have long debated whether President Roosevelt had advanced knowledge of Japan's December 7, 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor using documents pried loose through the Freedom of Information Act during 17 years of research, Stinnett provides overwhelming evidence that FDR and his top advisors knew that Japanese warships were heading toward Hawaii. FDR, who desired to sway public opinion in support of U.S. entry into World War II, instigated a policy intended to provoke a Japanese attack. The plan was outlined 
in a U.S. Naval Intelligence Secret Strategy Memo of October 1940. Roosevelt immediately began implementing its eight steps, which included deploying U.S. warships in Japanese territorial waters and imposing a total embargo intended to strangle Japan's economy, all of which climaxed in the Japanese attack. And to discuss the truth about Pearl Harbor and FDR, and to remember all the lives lost on this 73rd anniversary of that day of deceit, Robert Stinnett is coming up next. Robert B. Stinnett is a research fellow at the Independent Institute and the author of Day of Deceit, The Truth About FDR and Pearl Harbor. He served in the U.S. Navy from 1942 to 1946, where he earned 10 battle stars on a presidential unit citation. He has worked as a journalist and photographer for the Oakland Tribune, and he is a consultant on the Pacific War for the BBC and for Asahi an NHK television in Japan. In 1986, he resigned his position at the Tribune to devote himself full-time to the extensive and painstaking research through the Freedom of Information Act that was necessary to produce his book, Day of Deceit, another work. And directly from Oakland, California, I would like to welcome, and it's my honor to welcome, Robert B. Stinnett. Hello, Mr. Stinnett, and welcome to Veritas. Yes, thank you uh, for your invitation. It's my pleasure, and as you said, may I call you Bob? Bob, yeah, please. Thank you, and Bob, right before we before we start, before we talk about uh, you and your involvement during World War II and, and your research, I think it's important to credit America's Freedom of Information Act. Without it, could you have been able to conduct your research? Well, that is right, and I dedicate my book to the uh, author, uh, uh, he was a Sacramento congressman uh, for the Freedom of Information Act. If it hadn't been for that, could you have been able to to uncover and accomplish all of this in the in the decades you've been researching? I don't think so. Uh, the The Navy had, and the Army had uh, secreted secreted all of the uh, communications intelligence in a Navy vault in Crane, Indiana, and it was locked up there. And you go to National Archives, and they didn't have any uh, records of the communications intelligence between uh, Japan and the United States, and also in the Atlantic between Germany and uh, the United States. Now, let's start with your involvement during World War II. As a young man, you were in the Navy. Tell us about your involvement in World War II before we begin. 
Yes, I, I volunteered uh, to the U.S. Navy as, as a photographer, and they accepted me. And uh, I was assigned, uh, uh, after I went through the various checking in, I was assigned to the Pacific Fleet and the aircraft carrier USS San Jacinto, which is named after uh, a, a battle in Texas in, uh, in the 1800s. And uh, I, I reported to the uh, San Jacinto in uh, December 1944, along with uh, a photographic officer by the name of George H.W. Bush. And uh, it turned out he was, eventually became president of the United States. So I uh, learned aerial photography with him and flew with his plane uh, in, in, in the Pacific uh, against Japanese. We were looking for Japanese submarines. But uh, uh, a lot of planes were shot down, and they were losing photographers, and so we were prohibited from flying on, uh, on combat missions. To put, th- to put things in perspective, uh, as I said before, I like to go in chronological order. Paint a picture, Bob, of the isolationist United States prior to the attack of Pearl Harbor. We had just come out of World War One. The, the population in the United States did not want to join the war. Paint a picture of that time before the attacks of December 7th, 1941. That's, uh, that's right, uh, Mel. Uh, the, the, uh, 80% of American adults in a Gallup poll were opposed to getting into Europe's war. That's what they called it, Europe's war. And gold star mothers from uh, World War One were, were picketing or marching on Congress. Uh, and, and, uh, and then Henry Ford, the, the auto mogul, led the opposition. And uh, so did the Hearst newspapers. And, uh, and many other people who were just opposed to, to getting involved again in, a, in what they called Europe's war. And so uh, Roosevelt came up with this idea uh, and adopted a plan to get Japan to attack us at Pearl Harbor and then trigger a treaty that Japan had with Germany that they would all come to one another's aid if attacked by another company, or another, for another nation. And but Roosevelt provoked Japan into attacking us at Pearl Harbor, and he got them to fire the first shot, and and in that way, we that's how we got into the war. And of course, this was a backdoor deal, just because we really wanted to get into the war against Germany, but the axis, of course, was Germany, Italy, and Japan. Now. Eighty-some percent, as you said, were against joining the war, but seventy-some percent were in favor of imposing an embargo against Japan. That seems a, a bit counter, counterintuitive, Bob. Well, uh, the, uh, you're right about that. We, uh, President Roosevelt uh, did issue embargoes against uh, oil and those kind of supplies for Japan starting in 1940. But uh, there was a loophole in it. It applied only to high octane. You could get octane 87 or 84 or, or, or below the high octane rating. And so the Japanese tankers were filling up at our east or our west coast 
uh, ports and uh, taking them to Japan where they were available to their warships. Now, it's important to talk about the characters involved with this. Uh, let's start with Lieutenant Com Commander Arthur H. McCollum. And why is he important in your research? Commander uh, McCollum was head of the Far East Intelligence Desk for the U.S. Navy in Washington. He was also a codebreaker. He was born in Japan and uh, in, in new Japanese culture. He wrote a, a proposal uh, to, the, to the Navy commander, whatever, to, uh, it was designed to provoke Japan into attacking the United States. And he suggested uh, adopting eight provocations that would cause her to commit an overt act of war on Pearl Harbor. And uh, that, that, that was done. Uh, and and uh, uh, or, 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 the, the, he wrote the uh, article, the provocation article, on October 7th, 1940, which is about 14 months before Pearl Harbor. And so Roosevelt then had, had the, the go-ahead to, to start putting these provocations in place. I think it's important to discuss those provocations because once people see where they were, it's page eight of your book. Would you like me to mention some of them or would you like to mention them yourself? Well, uh, you, uh, there are eight of them and uh, they're printed in my book uh, so readers can, can see them. But if you had mentioned them, uh, one of them was to keep the United States fleet uh, at Pearl Harbor. Uh, it, the, we didn't have a, a two-ocean Navy at the time. So the the idea was to move the United States fleet to Pearl Harbor, and, uh, and that would uh, uh, entice Japanese nationalists uh, to, to attack us uh, there. It also uh, was to, to send American cruiser uh, groups into Japanese water, and then issue the and also issue the. Uh, uh, oil bargains and machine tools and things like that that Japan needed for war. The other other ones were to keep financing the Chinese civil war, Chiang Kai-shek, and I forgot, oh, and then a division of submarines to the Far East, and the other ones, you can you can remind me about it. But they well, were all put in place. There were eight of them. Yes, and they went one by one. Let me just read a few, if I if I might. Make an a yes. number one. Make an arrangement with Britain for the use of British bases in the Pacific, particularly Singapore. And I like to discuss also because a lot of the listeners may not know what the land uh, or land lease program was. Can you share with us what that was? Yes, well, getting he was getting bases from England or in the Pacific, and and those bases were uh, lend lease. You could say that, uh, but the idea was that uh, Britain would uh, let us use their bases in in the Pacific, and we were that was underway uh, in December 1941. We were after uh, the island. Uh, in the South Pacific, called Rabaul, 
and we were preparing that to be one of our bases. It was called uh, Base F, uh, and that was actively being uh, set for the for the fleet. So essentially, we were not part of the war yet, but we were providing the equipment to to England at the time. It's the equivalent of, let's say, your house is burning down, and I give you my hose so that you can put out the fire on your side. But the land lease came after when they said, but we need something in return. And that's when we started using a lot of the bases. Example, Diego Garcia. Isn't that how he came to be? Yes, you're absolutely right. And and Roosevelt used that uh, same to explain it, let let, let in a hose when your neighbor's house is on fire. Now, when you have all these points, let's see, point number two, make an arrangement with Holland for the use of bases, base facilities and acquisition of supplies in the Dutch East Indies. Now, Indonesia, there was East Timor, there was Portugal involved with Japan. So why was this part of the world so important? And what really caused the embargo? Well, I always like to know why the provocation, for example, in 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 the eastern in the western front we have hitler invading poland but we really are not told that much here in this part of the world why hitler did that now why are we provoking japan was it mainly to enter the european front first the the, the reason we were attacking japan was from the, the arthur mccullum memo which are uh, is, is i call the first overt act of war. And the whole idea was to get Japan to commit the overt act of war and then trigger the treaty with Germany and Japan. In other words, the backdoor approach to war, as you mentioned earlier. Now, let's put ourselves, um, again, we're American, we're patriotic, yes, but let's put ourselves in the Japanese shoes for a moment. If you're Japan, if you're Emperor Hirohito, what would you have done if he had been provoked that way, could you have another choice? Would you stand down? Well, uh, I think this was the only choice that uh, uh, President Roosevelt had, was to provoke Japan in- into war against the United States as quickly as he could. Because at the time that uh, Commander McCollum wrote this memo, Hitler was uh, bombing uh, England, uh, preparing to invade it, and uh, and then and then uh, conquer the the nation, merge the the Nazi fleet with the British fleet, and then come over to the, uh, North America and invade uh, uh, Bermuda, Canada, the uh, English possessions in the Caribbean, and uh, and use that as a, a launching spot to to attack the United States. And that's what McCollum says in his memo. So Roosevelt, he had no other option. And I I say that in my book. Uh, A lot of people have called him a a warmonger, but there was no other choice for for, for Roosevelt. Uh, If he had done nothing uh, and, and, and Great Britain was defeated, then it opened the gates for the Nazis to come over to North America. But let me rephrase and revisit the question because that's not what I meant. I know what you mean. But if you are the Japanese emperor 
and you are provoked that way. There's an embargo coming your way. You have the U.S. fleet pretty much invading your 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 sovereign waters, their territorial waters. You're around the Philippines. You're around Singapore. You're being provoked that way. The 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 oil embargo is taking place. That's crumbling at your economy. As the emperor, what would you have done? Well, the the emperor had and man had only one choice was to uh, uh, commit this overt act of war against Japan because they have no natural resources in Japan. You cut off their oil and other supplies, then then their whole industry comes to a halt. Their navy comes to a halt. So Roosevelt and McCullum knew that, and that's why they put these eight provocations to tick off the Japanese nationalists. And that's what they did. Exactly, and that's why I... I asked the question because, you know, now that we're looking at history in a different way because of the work of Robert Stinnett and, and others, we can see, we can point fingers at Japan, but it's important to know why did they attack us? Yes, we lost lives. So why did they attack us? And how far back, Bob, did Roosevelt know of the future surprise attack on Pearl Harbor? Well, he, he first got the idea of provoking Japan by moving the uh, uh, United States fleet uh, from uh, Los Angeles Harbor to Pearl Harbor uh, to do some exercises. And then the orders were the fleet was to return uh, to their normal bases. And this was in the spring of 1940. And the admiral in charge of the United States fleet protested about this and kept pestering Roosevelt the set a date to return, but he just made evasive answers, and and so uh, it, 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 it came to a, a showdown in October of 1940, when uh, Admiral Richardson, who was the commander of the United States fleet, met with Roosevelt in the Oval Office, and he had a knockdown, dragout uh, uh, discussion with the president calling him, you don't know what you're doing. And it was a very heated conversation. Uh, but it, uh, uh, it ended up that uh, Roosevelt that, that night decided to uh, go ahead and keep the fleet based at uh, Pearl Harbor, because that was one of the uh, provocations that uh, 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 Commander McCollum put in his eight provocations keep the fleet at Pearl Harbor as a lure. You know, we all know that the war economy really catapulted the United States to become the the superpower after World War II. Do you think that the pressure that Roosevelt had more than joining the war because he suspected that Nazi Germany would be invading the United States, could it be that bankers and financiers pushed them to do this because they needed a war economy? Well, during this prelude to October 1940, President Roosevelt was getting uh, appropriations approved by Congress to create a two-ocean navy and bring more and and enlarge the uh, Army military divisions, bring the Coast Guard into the navy. So this was going on 
and and also he put the draft a draft for American young men, and it passed Congress by only one vote. That's how close that was. But he was working on on this uh, while he was also planning to provoke Japan to create the first overt act. Did this idea come just from McCollum, or did others join McCollum to propose this to Roosevelt? Oh, it was a very secret, uh, Mel. Uh, um, uh, McCollum wrote this. This is just a five-page uh, uh, provocation deal, citing all the things that we've been discussing here. And uh, the uh, and then on, on, on October uh, the uh, the October 8th, that's when we met with the president in the Oval Office. They had the knockdown fight, and Roosevelt said, you know, to heck with the, the admiral, uh, we'll fire him. And that's what happened. It was leaked to, the, uh, to a whistleblower publication called the Kiplinger Report in Washington in October 1940 that uh, Admiral Richardson was slated to... Uh, be removed from command. It was one of those whistleblower reports, and he was removed from command in January 1941. And at the same time, the leak reached Japan, and they started getting ready to get their carrier fleet in position to attack Pearl Harbor. And I think it's interesting to to mention, Bob, that when we think of the Republicans today, we think of warmongers, and the opposite goes with the Democrats. But that was the opposite at the time, because if I remember correctly, at the time when there was one of the elections taking place, the Republican candidate was was completely isolationist. He did not want to go to war. And of course, Roosevelt, we know what happened. Why the contrast between now and back then? Well, you're right. Uh, the candidate was Wendell Wilkie, in the 1940 presidential election, so the, so the, uh, this is the height of the uh, uh, of the election with both uh, Roosevelt and Wilkie on the stump, and uh, Roosevelt uh, opened the campaign in October 1940. He just had a month of it, and uh, uh, all of these things were going on, and and, and in in Congress, and as, as I pointed out. Uh, he wanted the draft act passed, and it only made it by one vote. But that that made it the law of the land. Why do you think it passed? If the United States was so isolationist, well, uh, Roosevelt was the master politician, and he had uh, he had the votes in, in Congress, and uh, so you probably I, I don't know, of course, how we got the the final vote. But uh, got it, he did, and and the draft started uh, uh, immediately in the in the in the late fall of 1940. The, the numbers were called, and Americans started going to war. I just or find going to going to train for war. I just find a little bit of of, of a disconnect here. If the majority of the people were against the war, yet. We have Congress voting in favor, even for one vote. That means that, you know, 50 plus one, if you will, uh, or, or, you know, 50% plus 
was a little bit more voted in favor of the draft. So, you know, a little bit of the disconnect there. But there must have been a scapegoat, Bob, after the Pearl Harbor attack. Who was it? Was it Admiral Husband Kimmel? It was both Admiral Kimmel. The, the Hawaiian commanders were placed on the blame, saying that this is the Roosevelt said it was a uh, it's a day of infamy. It was a dastardly attack on the Pacific Fleet. The, 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 by, by December 1941, the, the, the fleets had been established in the Atlantic Fleet and the Pacific Fleet, and Admiral Kimmel was the commander of the Pacific Fleet. And they're the ones that took the, the blame. And then uh, General Short was the Army commander, and he took the blame for the Army failures, the, the so-called failures. But they were acting uh, uh, on direct orders of President Roosevelt not to uh, uh, interfere with Japan's uh, uh, overt act of war. They were told to stand aside. Well, I'm jumping the gun there. If I remember, I just want to remember from your research on the book, did Kimmel and the other commanders, did they know with time in advance what was coming? Well, uh, Admiral Kimmel uh, had uh, a, a, a monitor station that was monitoring the Japanese fleet frequencies. So they knew, uh, so Admiral Kimmel was told by the cryptographer in charge what the Japanese fleet was up to. And there, there were two new aircraft carriers, the, uh, the carriers, the, the Japanese carrier fleet was put all together. There were 10 carriers called the first air fleet. But prior to that time, they were scattered among the other six fleets. But this time in, uh, in April of 1941, the Japanese organized the, uh, their carrier force in a fast carrier force, and that's the one that attacked Pearl Harbor. Now, Kimmel, was it Kimmel who decided that he was not going to be at the base and he was playing golf or at home far away? Not far away, but he could see the, the, the attack happening from far away. Well, you see, the intercept station on on Pearl Harbor was called Station Hypo, H for for, for Hawaii. And Station Hypo was giving a, a daily summary of, uh, of communications intelligence to Admiral Kimmel, and he signed for them. And uh, th these were summaries of about a thousand messages that were being intercepted. Uh, by station station hypo at, uh, at Hawaii, and also he also uh, Kimmel got the copy, and a copy also went to Washington D.C. But uh, General Short, uh, he also had his own uh, radio station or monitor station at Fort Shafter, which was on Oahu. But his men did not have translation capabilities, and they had to send their messages to Washington, D.C. How far, how far back did Roosevelt know, well, actually not Roosevelt, but how long before the attack, Bob, had, had we broken the Japanese military and diplomatic codes? Yes, uh, we, uh, President Roosevelt was aware that we had broken the Japanese 
uh, naval code, which was called Code Book D, and uh, and also we had we had broken uh, the diplomatic codes, which we called the Purple Code. Uh, the Japanese had their own their their own name for it, but we called it the Purple Code, and the Japanese called the military or the, the naval code Code Book D. But we never uh, uh, used that term because we did not want Japan to know that we had broken the code because they would have changed it and we'd not have known what they were doing. Well, of course. But how far before the Pearl Harbor attack did we break it? On October 4th, 1940, the the main Navy, which was really running the... uh, the, the cryptography it said that uh, we had broken uh, the edition, uh, the edition five of Codebook D, which was in effect in the fall of 1940, and they expected to have the future uh, within the next uh, several months, and we would and they would be sending the uh, the uh, solved code to Hawaii and also to uh, the Philippines. You see, let me call myself a naive American for a moment, because there's this notion that Roosevelt knew days before the attack that the Japanese were coming. This is what most, I would say, a large portion of Americans know that, okay? But now that after reading your book, knowing that not only did we know, but we caused the the attack, if most people in the United States found out about this truth, and there's book like yours and a few others out there. Why is it that we don't see more people rising and saying, we cannot let this happen again? And the reason why I bring this up, Bob, well, let, let, let me focus on the question first. Why is it that more, more people don't rise up and, and, and make this more public? And then I'll tell you why I'm asking this question. Well, the, it was all top secret. It was all secret all throughout the war. And then after the war, all of these intercepts and the and the uh, and the breaking of the of the imperial naval code was was locked up in in the uh, secret vaults in Green, Indiana. I'm the one that got them out by filing an FOIA. Well, the reason why I bring this up, Bob, is because now, and I don't mean to digress from from your research, but you know we have Pearl Harbor, we have 9/11, now. I don't know if you feel the same way, Bob, but we look at what's happening in Ukraine. Russia, Ukraine, Poland, Germany, Hitler, Putin. Now, with all this Ebola-Ferguson destruction that we had a few days ago, we have House Resolution 758 that passed by Congress to get us into World War III. Have Have you been following that? And do you see, is it reminiscent of the time before World War II? Well, I have been following that, and it's an exact replica that was started by President Roosevelt provoking Japan to attack us at Pearl Harbor. Look at how Vietnam was used by President Johnson to provoke us in the Gulf of Tonkin. We have the weapons for mass destruction, which to provoke us to attack in the Middle East. You just go over and over. This is all followed they're following the success of President Roosevelt in the overt act of war. 
Bob, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you're following the news now and you are able to connect the dots because I'm reading here on December 4th, 2014, the worst piece of legislation ever passed by the U.S. Congress. And it basically says it's strongly condemning the actions of the Russian Federation under President Vladimir Putin, which has carried out a policy of aggression against neighboring countries aimed at political and economic domination, unquote. Isn't this, once again, are we doing the same thing we were doing with Japan to Russia so that Russia can, in fact, attack us in some way? Well, I I don't know. I've I've spent uh, close to 20 years just concentrating on the Japanese uh, 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 information and their code breaking. Getting into the others is is beyond my cat. I I don't have the time to do that. That's fine. That's fine. uh, but uh, I do know J- Japan and how it was used by all, every president since Roosevelt has used elements of the uh, of his overt act of war plan. You mean Which false? Which also goes back to Greek times, uh, uh, provoking your uh, opponent as old as the the world. Oh, absolutely. The Romans did it too. False flags. Yeah. This is this is not a new thing. I mean, we had it in That's the Spanish-American right. War, Vietnam, you name it. Now, what That's was right. the, the quote-unquote splendid arrangement? Okay, very good. The, the splendid arrangement was the intercept stations that was operated by the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Army. So the U.S. Navy was... Uh, a lot more adept. They attracted more talented people to the Navy. And and, and so uh, in the Pacific Basin, they had 25 monitor stations stretching from San Diego north along the West Coast to Alaska and then down the, the Chinese coast and to the Philippines. And that included some stations operated by the British. But all these 25 were working together and monitoring the Japanese naval codes. I emphasize uh, to you that it's the naval code, because that was what was in. We, they, they, uh, we also broke the, the, uh, the, the foreign office code, but that didn't reveal a lot of information, though, though someone who was very talented could figure it out. So it wasn't until after the war that I started raising these questions and uh, and got them released from the crane Indiana. I was the first. There's there's about 3,700 Pearl Harbor books according to Amazon.com, and none of the other authors, none of the 3,700 authors. Uh, interviewed any of the codebreakers, the Navy codebreakers. I was the first one and the only one. 3,700 books. Now, please tell us about your interviews with this, these cryptographers. Are some of them still alive or have they passed on? The, 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 there were about, uh, at the time of Pearl Harbor, there was about 200 uh, uh, cryptographers. They were, they were masters of the Japanese military or the Japanese Imperial Japanese code, uh, the Navy code. And uh, they, they're all either died or, or suffering from dementia. But I got them while they were still alive, including the chief, the traffic chief for the Pacific Fleet, the man in charge of all of these 200 men. Hello? Bob, can you hear me? Yeah, now Bob. I hear you. Okay. 
when was your first interview with whom, and how did you broker that interview? Well, first of all, I, I was in the Navy, but we knew nothing about breaking the Japanese mil, uh, naval code. And I was a photographer, and we did we took pictures of Japanese warships, uh, or I developed those taken by George Bush from his photo plane. And uh, I did not learn about breaking the Japanese naval code till I read a book called At Dawn We Slept by Gordon Prang, which was issued in uh, in 1982. And it, and it just had a throwaway line that we were... The United States Navy had a monitor station in Hawaii that was listening in to the Japanese naval warships. Uh, the, that was the first time I had heard about that. And, that, uh, and I knew that by listening to radio, like on police calls, you could find out what's happening. And so I went to my editor at the Oakland Tribune and I suggested that we confirm that there was a monitor station in Hawaii and let's go over and take pictures of it. And he okayed that. And then I filed my first FOIA, the Freedom of Information, with the Navy. And believe it or not, they granted me to come over and see it. And so I did. And this was in September 1982. And when I came over there, I was proud that that I was, that apparently was the first one, but the Navy corrected me and said that the Japanese had beat me by a month in August. They had sent a TV crew over to Station Hypo and had photographed it, so they knew about it uh, before I did. But I was the first uh, Allied uh, newsman to say that. You're a contributor to to Japanese networks and the BBC also, but with Japan. What is the impression right now of what happened during World War II with your communication with the media in Japan? What is the perception of the people in that country about what happened? You mean in Japan? In Japan, yes. Yes. Uh, well, I, I, I had a book tour of Japan because my book is published in Japan. And uh, uh, the Japanese are very... Uh, cordial and, and, and to you, but I I, I, I learned that, that while they uh, were happy to hear my discussion, uh, they they thought that uh, I was really trying to take away their only victory of World War II, Pearl Harbor, and uh, Japan is like the United States. There's, there's many viewpoints. Uh, on, on Pearl Harbor, uh, and uh, that, that, that was the thing that uh, surprised me. That they thought that uh, my book took away their uh, only victory. Interesting. And let me just read this excerpt from the book, and this is something that most Americans talk about. To this day, critics continue to deny there was American foreknowledge of an attack. They make two assertions. One that America's radio cryptographers failed to solve Japanese naval codes, and two, that even if the codes were successfully broken and translated, the American intelligence community could not know for sure where the blow would fall because Japan's admirals maintained radio silence and did not disclose the target as Pearl Harbor. But these two assertions were demolished with the May 2000 Freedom of Information Act release. Now, 
when we think of Freedom of Information Act, a lot of people think, oh, this happened in the 70s or 60s or 80s. But this just happened less than two decades ago. Can you share with us the release, what the release included? Yes, the, uh, there's over a million records, and I've got most of them, though there are still thousands that have not been released uh, on the Pearl Harbor attack. Your listeners should know about that. Uh, but but I got the main thing, and 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 my first uh, FOIA, FOIA act uh, in uh, it was in January uh, January 1995. January 95. I wanted to see these Japanese naval records, and I and the and the, and the National Archives brought out about ten boxes. And in one of those boxes was the McCollum uh, memo, and I, and that that was the bombshell, uh, the smoking gun of, of Pearl Harbor. And but I had to check that out, and it took me all of the 1995 to check out those provocations. And once I knew, once I was confirmed, once I was able to confirm all the eight provocations, then I knew I had a book. And uh, I got uh, sold the book, and, and then it was published in uh, 1999. Give us a summary of what that memo included. Uh, well, the, uh, the the memo is is McCollum's memo, which is published in my book, and that's that's where he proposed uh, eight provocations, to, and he said if you'll do that, then battle call Japan. To, to declare war on the United States. So basically, it was in a, it was in a, uh, in a uh, Navy records, uh, and the the person, the archivist that brought those out had no idea that was in there, and I didn't either. I had to go through each box, which held about 300 documents. So I had to pour through about 3,000 documents until I found. The uh, McCullough memo, and then I, uh, I was uh, really excited because I realized this is, if it's true, this is a smoking gun, and then it was true, and it is a smoking gun. It was pretty much the blueprint of what would transpire after, right? right? The blueprint, right? Right, the absolute blueprint. And the, the Japanese reacted just the way McCollum uh, predicted they would. Now, do you think that he became so close with Roosevelt because he was born, raised in Japan, spoke fluent Japanese and knew the culture? He pretty much knew how the Japanese were going to make the next move. Well, President Roosevelt, you know, who was uh, Assistant Secretary of the Navy in World War One, So he had a great affinity for naval officers, especially young ones of the World War One era, and who became his commanders in World War Two. So he was very close to the, to the Navy, and he relied on information generated by McCollum as the Far East desk, because he has secret records that I've just discovered that could be in my next book. They also confirm his close association with the president. Now, there's, when we think of the 50s, 60s, 
maybe 70s, we think of Walter Cronkite. But when we think of maybe the 30s, 40s, we think of Edward R. Murrow, radio newsman for CBS. He was called to the White House. He was invited to the White House, and, and he met with President Roosevelt after the attack. Did you ever, Bob, did you ever find out what was discussed during that meeting, or did Morrow die in 1965 with the secret? No, you're right. Uh, President Roosevelt invited uh, Edward R. Morrow and uh, the head of the, 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 what became the CIA, Donovan, the two of them, was Donovan and and uh, Murrow and, the, and President Roosevelt in his upstairs office at the White House, and he had them from a midnight meeting after the attack. This this was midnight, December seventh and eighth, and he asked them, "Do you think uh, this is going to unite America?" No, that was the question, uh, and uh, uh, both of them, both Donovan and Murrow said yes, they were sure. But Murrow said he never wrote about that because he didn't give an explanation, but apparently he was relying on not not to embarrass President Roosevelt and and, and the overt act of war. And so I asked, uh, Murrow died, and, and, uh, and then his wife had his papers, I wrote to her, and she would not release it. And I also wrote to his son, uh, who survived both of them, but he would not uh, confirm it. Uh, he, he denied it to an attorney. So uh, uh, he apparently made a promise not to reveal that. If I'm confused because if he was summoned to the White House and discussed something of great importance with Roosevelt, and then kept the secret, what, again, I know you deal with facts, and I appreciate that, but if you had to speculate, what do you think was discussed during that evening? Well, we we know from Donovan, the president of Roosevelt asked him, do you think this is going to uh, unite America and do away with the isolation movement? Uh, I quote uh, uh, Donovan in my book on that. But uh, on... On uh, on Murrow, uh, uh, he, 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 he promised not to to, to reveal it to, uh, to to his CBS audience, and he kept his word. And then you have that going on now with uh, James Risen of the New York Times and the uh, CIA monitoring uh, telephone calls of Americans. So what, what promises that he would not reveal? So, so, so that's that's what newsmen do to get a lot of the stories, so they can be the whistleblowers. Oh, of course, of course, and the, if they have the trust of their sources, then they get more more information and and important stories. But what exactly is it that he was supposed to keep a secret that we had foreknowledge of the attack that was necessary to galvanize the American population to? go to war? I could only speculate on that based on this question uh, that uh, uh, we have this attack now and uh, has it united the country? And, and, and they both have said, yes, it has, according to Donovan. If I play devil's advocate for a moment here, Bob, 
I'm yeah, thinking if I'm thinking, all right, we have opponents, we have another political party, they're going to start digging and they're going to use the media to dig the dirt and basically try to find out if we actually had foreknowledge. So all I do is find the best reporter of the time, people who everybody trusted Moros, just like they trusted Cronkite. So we bring him to the White House and tell him what happened. That way he can be the barometer and keep it a secret so that they don't go out there and keep digging. Is that what you think happened? That's what happened. And uh, uh, one of uh, Murrow's colleagues, uh, an author, I forgot his name, uh, wanted to know what happened there. And he he told him, uh, I'm not going to do your research for you. Uh, what happened there would send my son Casey to uh, college, and I'm not revealing it. And I, I have that in my book. I've forgotten. The, uh, he was a very well-known author. And those were the times when new, I mean, reporters created news. Right now, all you do is just switch channels. You probably have seen that, Bob. And they read from the same script. What happened to the press now in comparison to that time? Well, uh, I, I, I listened to Edward R. Murrow and his CBS programs, and I relate on him, and also NBC time, uh, uh, and uh, also Fulton Lewis Jr., who represented the far right. Uh, was another, uh, there were, you know, radio commentators. So uh, this is just a new, uh, and you, you you make a promise uh, not to reveal you know, the source, and and Murrow did that. No, I understand that. And regarding the FYIA, what, was it easy for you to obtain these files, or did you face resistance? I, I discuss other topics, and I hear from researchers who sometimes face so much resistance. Oh, I, I would never pay for that. Uh, all, all of this uh, was, uh, you know, I fitted the bill for my airfare and, and paying and making the, doc, the document copies. I did all that. I did. I, I had no grants. I did it all. No, but I'm talking about people behind the FYIA. Did you have any resistance from them? You know, we cannot give you this, but we can give you that. Oh no, no. I, well, yes, uh, yes. I got these. I got these. The McCullough the, the memo, which is the really the blockbuster, the smoking gun. But there's other items that I filed on. And I have not got them. I've written personal letters to uh, President Obama after he announced uh, on the day that he was inaugurated that he was doing away with all this Pearl Harbor censorship. Transparency. No, I'm and yeah, I'm saying, I'm saying, you, you, I'm laughing because, like you, many of us, you know, fell, fell through the trap of. This will be the most transparent administration. If you need information about the government, we'll provide it. So what happened there? Well, he turned the table on us. You can say he's wanting to put James Risen in prison for not revealing his sources to a whistleblower. There's more been uh, more charges brought against news, news people by the by Obama's administration than any other one, and I voted for Obama. 
Well, but whistle and, and many of the people who listened to us did too, because they were tired of the wars. And, and I'm talking about apolitical people who vote on the candidate. They were tired of the same going to war situation. And yeah. I, I really don't see a difference between the administrations. But, you know, when you wrote to me after you kindly accepted my invitation, and then I told you that I was in Arizona, I think of uh, the USS Arizona, you also told me that Tucson, where I am, played an important part in the cover-up of the Japanese naval spy who, who sent pre-Pearl Harbor cablegrams. Can you elaborate? Oh, yes. This is just re- remarkable. The, you know, soon after uh, Ro- Roosevelt uh, 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 adopted the, the policy in October 1940, Japan started organizing their fleet. And this, these messages were coming back to President Roosevelt including uh, the arrival of a Japanese naval spy in Honolulu. There was just one spy, and his name was Yoshikawa. And he was a Japanese ensign. He was made a part of the Japanese consulate, and uh, he was uh, admitted as a consular agent. The, the, uh, theoretically, the, the U.S. Navy didn't know that, but they did, because they checked the foreign office register for a person by the name of Yoshikawa. Uh, And uh, there was no such person in the Japanese uh, uh, diplomatic uh, roster. So they they, they figured out this guy uh, must be watched. So they put a a tail on him, and so did the FBI. And his first messages were providing a census of the fleet that was at Pearl Harbor. And then in September, he started making bomb plots of Pearl Harbor, where battleships were uh, moored, where cruisers were moored, where aircraft carriers would move. And then in, uh, in, in, in the week before Pearl Harbor, he was asked to find out if there were any barrage balloons above Pearl Harbor that would hamper the aircraft from Japan uh, from bombing the, the Pacific Fleet and the installations there. So this was this is the guy Yoshikawa uh, was, was actually acting in, in the consulate, and Roosevelt was getting these messages, and even sent David Sarnoff, who was the head of NBC, the National Broadcasting Company, to to Hawaii to get uh, his RCA office. Uh, which was sending the messages from the spy to Tokyo and receiving them back. And uh, so uh, Roosevelt knew all of this, and uh, and also so did General General Short, because the Sarnoff talked with Short and also apparently with uh, Kimmel, though Kimmel has not admitted that. So now this spy... Once the attack began, then the the Honolulu police uh, took him into custody or protective custody. Then they were moved. The there were about twelve people of the consulate, including Yoshikawa, the spy, and they were taken in luxury uh, staterooms aboard the uh, President liners to uh, Los Angeles, where they boarded trains to, to Tucson, where they were then transferred 
to a uh, a uh, dragoon. Uh, uh, to dragoon, yeah. Uh, where there was a there was a, uh, a camp there. Uh, you know, a deluxe uh, facility. And so they were 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 in there on President Roosevelt's orders. He said, "Give them uh, plenty of food, but keep them incommunicado." He did not want to that to leak out. But at the same time as he did that, he sent a hundred thousand Japanese, innocent Japanese Americans, to concentration camps where, where where there was only one person involved in spying on the Japanese fleet, and that was Yoshikawa, and he was getting. Uh, uh, top-notch treatment uh, there in Dragoon, uh, Arizona. Did he suspect that he was essentially, even though he was being pampered, that he was actually in detention, if you will, detained? Oh yes. Well, he. Well, the uh, right after the the attack. Uh, Sweden took over the Japanese diplomatic things, so they arranged for exchanging uh, prisoners of war because that's what they were—prisoners of war—and we had prisoners of war in Japan, and uh, so Sweden arranged for an exchange later on in 1942, so the uh, uh, so, so both sides could exchange their uh, diplomatic uh, or. or or whoever was assigned to their consulates. But, you know, then you mentioned Arthur Conkright, Walter Conkright, earlier. In the 20th anniversary of Pearl Harbor, Cronkite and CBS News brought Yoshikawa over to Pearl Harbor and got him to reenact what he was doing. And, uh, uh, and J. Edgar Hoover wanted to arrest him at that time. But then that would have revealed all these Pearl Harbor secrets. Exactly. So, so John Kennedy uh, said, no, let him go. And so uh, Cronkite did a broadcast with him, uh, but, but Yoshikawa returned to Japan to his uh, native home island, and he died there of a heart attack, oh, maybe 10 years later. J. Edgar Hoover, what a character. That was. We could do an entire show about him. But um, we have to take a one and only intermission, Bob, so you can grab some water, use the restroom if you have to. But how did people buy the book, Day of Deceit, The Truth About FDR and Pearl Harbor? How do they react to it? No, how do they buy it? Where do they go to buy it? Oh, oh excuse me. Oh, you can, you can get it at your local bookstores or at Amazon.com. Uh, they they, uh, they they have it on sale and it's it's a bestseller there right now. Uh, I've got a uh, almost an eighty percent approval rating, and there's a twenty percent uh, uh, negative. I think I mentioned that earlier. Okay, so haters are going to be haters, and people who don't want the history revised with with data and evidence, they just. They don't want to hear it. I, I talk about this with many of my, my friends, and they just basically want to cover their ears, Bob. And we'll discuss this when we return. This is Mel Fambergas. I'm here with my special guest, Robert B. Stinnett, discussing Pearl Harbor, the day of deceit, 73 years after. Don't go anywhere, folks. Much more when we return. 
Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important interview. To listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back. Enjoy. Enjoy. 